Some of the most iconic, recognizable characters on television may be household names, but not many know the faces behind them. Jim Henson's puppeteers are superstars, but unless they slip into character and do the voice, they have complete anonymity out in the real world. So what happens when a bloody trail leads directly to the massive estate of one of the most beloved of these characters? And at the end of that trail is a body. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. At 7.36 p.m. on Monday, December 12, 2005, the Connecticut State Police in Danielson receive a frantic telephone call from a man named John Baker. He reports that his wife, 44-year-old Judith Nyland, is missing. Judy left their home in North Woodstock, Connecticut at about 4.30 p.m. that afternoon for what John describes as her daily run. But some three hours later, she failed to return. It's unlike Judy to be gone so long. It is as dark as ink out on the streets of Woodstock. There's no way Judy would be out running at this hour of the night. And John is very worried. John says he has driven the normal route Judy takes during her jog. He knows it by heart. Still, driving slowly up and down those roads over and over, he cannot find her. So they send out a few troopers. I already hate where this is going, Phelps. Yeah, it doesn't sound too good. That is my producer, Catherine Law, who you hear from time to time on Crossing the Line. And I'll say this, Catherine. I recall reporting on this story for a book I was working on. And it was crushing. The immense love for Judy Nyland by everyone was something I had really never run into. It's also the cozy idleness of Woodstock, Connecticut's second largest town by area, that makes the story so intense. It seems like the last place you'd expect something like this to happen. But the fact is, murder can occur anywhere, anytime. And there is also a lesson to be learned from this case, a lesson that Big Bird, who will become a part of this, should have known, I believe. So like Big Bird, Big Bird. Yes. Listen, Phelps. Me Too already ruined Elmo for me, so please do not tell me Big Bird murdered somebody. I I can't. Well, hang on. I can't. Hang on a minute. Okay. okay. You're getting right. ahead of yourself here. Okay. But yes, we are talking about that Big Bird. All right. The roads of Woodstock are twisting and winding. There are general and hardware stores, cafes, taverns, pizza parlors, and even a winery or two. People smile at one another and wave. The 7,800 residents go about their daily business and head home at night to settle into the privacy they cherish so much, snuggled up with a sense of security, living in such a remote piece of suburban bliss. Up on a rise, heading toward the center of Pomfret, one of Woodstock's neighboring towns, on Route 169 sits the Woodstock Middle School. The surrounding area is green, dotted with century-old homes, antique shops, and oak trees older than the town itself. Judy Nyland works at that middle school, 
She is a social worker whose students absolutely adore. She was always so happy, one student wrote in an essay about Judy. She made everyone else happy. With Judy basically missing, State Trooper Gregory Trahan arrives at John and Judy's home. English Neighborhood Road, where they share their home, is exactly what the name implies. A winding, curvy, rural road that connects to Brickyard Road north toward the east and Rawson Road heading west. There's an inkblot of a pond not too far off. John Baker says he last spoke to Judy at 3 p.m. Quote, I believe she went for a run on area roads near our home. End quote. What was she wearing? Trooper Trahan asks. John tells him a yellow-colored windbreaker with a reflective stripe, dark-colored spandex-type pants, black-colored fleece-type gloves, gray or white sneakers, and ear warmers. With that, the Connecticut State Police opens an official missing person investigation. They search the immediate area around John and Judy's house first. Maybe Judy had slipped on the snow, hit her head, and for all anybody knew, she's passed out, freezing to death in a snowbank. English Neighborhood Road and the surrounding region is also desolate and thickly wooded. Think forest, lots of it. Judy Nyland? could be anywhere. Additional troopers arrive and begin to retrace that route Judy had usually taken on her run. At first, troopers don't find much, and frustration quickly builds. John knows his wife. According to what he later says, they'd had a storybook marriage for 20 years. They'd spend all of their free time together, working on their home, raising a few dogs, bringing up John's children. John had spent some time in the business world and they had been talking lately about opening up their own business, a daycare. Still, John needs to answer some questions. He was the last person to talk to Judy. He reported her missing. As the night progresses, the state police bring in canines, a blue and gold Trooper One helicopter, along with additional manpower to assist in the search. It's getting colder as the night sky darkens. By midnight, temps are set to fall into the teens, then single digits. What if Judy had tripped, hurt her ankle, and was lying in a ditch somewhere? One aspect of Judy's life that the Connecticut State Police did not yet know was that Judy had recently been involved with the state's attorney's office in Danielson, working with state attorney Patricia Froelich in particular. There was a problem at school, a sexual abuse case involving a child, and Judy was a witness. She was helping the state's attorney's office build its case. Quote, I remember that discussion over the dinner table, John explains, and how furious Judy was at what happened to the child. What inflamed Judy most was that, within it all, this child was somehow being blamed for what happened to her. An alert goes out to all the local police departments and other law enforcement agencies describing Judy and the conditions surrounding her disappearance. As 8 p.m. becomes 9 p.m., there is still no sign of Judy. An hour later, nothing. But as the 11 o'clock hour approaches, a clue, one very important piece of evidence that gives investigators a cold feeling that this missing person case isn't going to turn out the way everyone had hoped. It's about 10.25 p.m. 
Trooper Michael Robinson, doing a sweep of the neighborhood with a spotlight, comes across a piece of clothing. He was traveling west on Redhead Hill Road, which connects English Neighborhood Road, where Judy and John live, to Brickyard Road in a semi-triangular-shaped tract of land. When he spots the clothing off to the south side, a black and gray-colored headband. John Baker had not reported Judy wearing a headband, but it seems possible she left the house wearing one. It's cold. The headband makes sense. Moreover, the road where it is found is right along Judy's running path. Well, and he did say she was wearing, like, earmuffs or something, something over her ears. That's right. Maybe he confused it. Yeah. The headband isn't what piqued the state police's interest the most, however. When Robinson gets out of his cruiser and combs the immediate area near the headband, he finds a receipt from a local heavy equipment sales and service store. Among the items on the receipt is a chainsaw. The date of the purchase, December 10th, 2005, two days ago. Phelps, we've dealt with chainsaws on this show before and I'm, I'm not okay with this. Stick with me here, Captain Law. Let's take our first break. Very short, I promise, people. Don't get excited and come right back. (laughs) A man named Scott D.O.J. signed for that chainsaw receipt. The state police learned almost immediately after some basic investigating. He signs for it, however, on the account of a guy named Carol Spinney, who has an enormous estate up on Brickyard Road, not too far away from where the state trooper located the receipt. Carol Spinney is better known as Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. You know, the tall, yellow-feathered creature and green garbage can animal on public television's hit show Sesame Street. Spinney was a puppeteer who played Big Bird and Oscar for decades. In addition to the headband and receipt, Trooper Robinson notices something else worth noting. Several spots of a blood-like substance are visible on the receipt. Bad sign. Indeed. Upon further inspection, Robinson also notes that minute blood-like spots were on the snow next to where the headband and receipt are found. What's more, the receipt has no signs of weathering. So it was probably dropped there very recently, not a couple days ago when the chainsaw was actually purchased. Turning around, heading back to his cruiser, Robinson finds yet another clue indicating something on the road nearby. Skid marks. Now, important here is this. Carol Spinney's estate is set back a ways from Brickyard Road. Looking at the property from the street, it's hard to comprehend how enormous the house and land accompanying it are. The one image that comes through, though, as you stare into the property, is that Mr. Big Bird cares about the landscaping, and the gardening throughout is expensive and immaculate. The Spinney Estate, which Big Bird shares with his wife and three children, is situated on a sect of land so far into North Woodstock that part of the property actually resides in Southbridge, Massachusetts. Scott D.O.J., the name on that receipt the Connecticut State Police found, is a 36-year-old convicted felon from Plainfield, Connecticut, about a 45-minute drive south of Woodstock. D.O.J. has been employed by Spinney for quite a while and is a hard worker. 
Beyond building fountains and steps and patios, DOJ takes care of Spinney's property and keeps up with the pruning and weeding and grass cutting. Save for a few local merchants, no one in Woodstock knows Scott DOJ. He doesn't live in town. He travels into Woodstock each morning. During the week of December 12th, when Judy Nyland is reported missing, the Spinneys are in Europe on vacation and DOJ is alone on the estate. So this guy seems like he might be dangerous. He has a record, and it's not a good one. And look, I'm not knocking Carol Spinney, but I find this totally irresponsible if you're hiring the guy to work on your property. Why not do a background check? And based on the specifics of Scott D.O.J.'s record, this is not a dude you would want to have access to anything or anyone, especially women. But let's get back to the investigation. Trooper Michael Robinson has noticed those skid marks leading up to where he finds the bloody receipt and blood droplets in the snow. After a quick measurement, it is clear that the skid marks are 40 feet long and fresh. Whatever happened had occurred within the past 24 hours, Robinson, an experienced accident investigator, knows for certain. By 11.33 p.m., the first witness speaks up as police canvass the neighborhood. A man says he saw Judy earlier that day between 4.20 and 4.30 p.m. while he was returning to his residence. He was traveling north on Redhead Hill Road as Judy Nyland was jogging towards him heading south. The neighbor tells police he and Judy exchanged waves, adding she was wearing a yellow nylon type windsuit black gloves, and possibly a black-colored hat. An off-duty Connecticut State trooper who lives in the same neighborhood and knows Judy hears about the case and says he saw Judy jogging as well. As he passed Judy and continued north onto English Neighborhood Road, he recalls seeing something else, a Ford Escort or maybe a Mercury Tracer, a station wagon, traveling east, past him, heading in Judy's direction. The car was beat up, painted shabbily with a dull black primer. A white male was driving the vehicle. There was no one else in the car with the man. That is the same type of vehicle Scott D.O.J. drives. At 4.10 a.m., Connecticut State Police Detectives Michael Contry and Richard Bedard wake up the owner of the equipment center that had generated the bloody receipt. Carol Spinney is a good customer, the owner says, noting that the receipt was generated by Spinney's account. They ask him about the name on the slip, Scott D.O.J. I recall Mr. D.O.J. and a heavyset female with blonde hair coming in on December 8th, the guy says. His records verify the visit by D.O.J. Quote, he wanted to purchase a chainsaw and bar oil and he wanted to put them on Carol Spinney's account, end quote. The owner wouldn't let him. So DOJ's girlfriend wrote the guy a check. Man, this DOJ guy is not smart if he's actually a criminal. I would say that he's definitely not the sharpest tool in the shit. (laughs) DOJ returned to the store on December 10th to buy an axe and several other items. Scott DOJ is described as a rather plain looking man with a thick Tony Orlando Saddam Hussein type mustache. He has the brown beady eyes of a crow, a round face, and two days worth of five o'clock shadow stubble. He appears dirty and unkempt. Besides that girlfriend, the guy's a loner. 
Detective Marty Graham, along with his partner, David Lamoureux, are called into the investigation. They have several addresses for Scott D.O.J. It seems like he has lived everywhere. Never a good sign. They go to one address where he is supposed to be living with a woman who has three of his kids. No one is home. They hit the next address on the list. Again, no sign of their guy. Then they find DOJ's brother who says, I think he's living with this girl in Plainfield. By now it's close to six in the morning as they knock on that door. DOJ's girlfriend, half naked, still half asleep, says, give me a minute, wait here. DOJ is in bed. They can hear him speak up when his girlfriend calls out to him. She tells him it's the state police. And upon hearing that, he jumps out of bed, butt naked, and takes off as fast as he can, not even stopping to get dressed. Pretty freaking suspicious, if you ask me. Now, one theory was that Scott D.O.J. had accidentally hit Judy with his vehicle. He might have even driven back to the Spinney property, located about 1.5 miles from the crime scene on Redhead Hill Road. And if he had, the potential is there for evidence to be found on Big Bird's property. But do we think he accidentally hit her? I mean, murder does seem more likely given this guy's whole deal. And, you know, this is a true crime murder show. So let's, you know, let's be honest here. (laughs) Meanwhile, several Connecticut State Police troopers obtain maps and land records from the town of Woodstock, as well as GPS readings. It is important to get a clear picture of Big Bird's estate. Big Bird gives the okay from Europe for the state police to go onto his property. As the state police go through the Spinney estate, one of the troopers notices something strange. There is an access road on the property set off by an immaculate and immense stone archway, which leads to a right-hand turn off the main driveway leading into the property, a fork in the road, in other words. The road directs you to the far rear of the property, heading toward a thickly settled wooded area. For investigators, It is a challenge just to get around the property without falling. The frozen snow on the grounds was making the entire estate as slick as an ice skating rink. Near the end of the access road is an area with a large Chinese pagoda-like structure built up on posts. It has no ground flooring. Two paddle boats are stored underneath the structure. As they make their way down the access road, they notice a trail of blood leading directly to the pagoda, and yet it stops once you get inside underneath the structure. Stored paddle boats have blood spatter and smudge marks on them. What's more, how can a trail of blood just stop abruptly? Troopers look up inside the pagoda and spy a set of pull-down stairs, you know, as if leading to an attic, which are obviously connected to a storage area. That blood trail stops directly underneath the pull-down stairs. Meanwhile, back at DOJ's girlfriend's house where Mr. DOJ has taken off naked as a jaybird, Detective Marty Graham and his partner now have to make chase. I should say I know Marty very well. One of the best Connecticut cops I know. He's a guy built for this sort of work. He's a big dude. DOJ ran from the bedroom into a garage attached to the house. His clothes are still sitting on a chair by the bed. When we got into the bedroom, Marty Graham told me, we knew he had taken off and we were like, oh shit, now we have to chase this clown. Yeah. 
Leaving the bedroom, Marty goes into the garage and looks around. His partner calls for backup. With snow on the ground outside, Marty quickly determines that Scott DOJ could not have taken off or there would have been fresh footprints in the snow. Marty and his partner, both now in the garage, hear some movement. The sounds are coming from, it seems, inside the wall. Scott DOJ is hiding underneath the house in what Marty describes for me later as a three-foot-high crawl space. Marty, on his stomach, looks underneath the house. Hey, he shouts, what are you doing? He can barely see DOJ. Yet, shining a flashlight, Marty sees DOJ's bare ass and realizes the dude is shivering. DOJ won't respond. Scott, we just want to talk to you, Marty says. Then decides that, closing in on retirement and being well over six feet tall, Marty Graham is not going underneath the house to pull Scott DOJ out. <laughs> but his very young partner is going to. <laughs> I love it. The question here is, does DOJ have a weapon? What is he planning to do? Going under a house to pull him out doesn't go all that well. So they regroup and decide, you know what? Why not flush the guy out from underneath the house the old school way? Pepper spray. If this guy is bare-ass naked under his own house... Yeah, he's done. If you run when you see the police... You're guilty. Then you're probably... You know you got something going on to hide. The pepper spray works. They get him out and get him dressed, handcuffed, <laughs> and then they sit him down. I had no involvement with the missing woman, DOJ says immediately after being asked about Judy Nyland. Marty asks about the bloody receipt. DOJ's name is on it. Why would blood be on a receipt he had signed for? Where is she, Scott? Marty says. I don't know. The interview goes on for three hours. They get nowhere. Then some information comes in. DOJ had been questioned about a rape in Plainfield years ago, which now puts a new spin on how he looks as a possible suspect in Judy Nyland's disappearance. From there, they locate DOJ's car. Along the passenger side rear door and quarter panel is a smearing of an ample amount of blood, as well as a pattern impression of blood on the rear passenger side of the vehicle. They ask Scott DOJ about the blood. He says he has no clue how it got there. Hmm. Let's take another short break, come back, and find out the rest of this case. When the pressure of being found out is on some killers, they sometimes turn to the only way out they know, death. All of the questioning Marty and his partner did with Scott D.O.J. was done at D.O.J.'s apartment and his girlfriend's house. After all, they have nothing forensically to connect him to Judy Nyland. Everything's circumstantial, so they cannot hold him. D.O.J.'s girlfriend, though, is not happy with the circumstances, to say the least. Here is her boyfriend at her house, a man she thought she knew, being accused of serious, violent crimes. After Marty and his partner leave, she approaches Scott D.O.J. I'd imagine it's something to the tune of, get the hell out of my house. You got it. She wants him <laughs> and all his shit out now. Yep. D.O.J. goes back into the garage alone. After more than 10 minutes, the girlfriend walks into the garage and she sees him standing with a blue strap around his neck. 
the other end attached to a rafter. Say goodbye, DOJ says. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at Big Bird's estate, investigators pulled down those stairs heading into a storage room inside the pagoda-like structure. At the edge of the pagoda, around the corner, is a wooden bench. In front of the bench is a large area of blood-like substance. On one of the support posts of the pagoda near the wooden bench is a second smearing of blood, which appears to be fresh. As soon as the first trooper reaches the top of the stairs, the reality of what has happened to Judy Nyland becomes sadly clear. There before him is, quote, the deceased body of a white female who was wearing a yellow windbreaker gloves black-colored spandex-type running pants, which were pulled down to her knees, end quote. From studying the scene, detectives determine that Judy has been beaten about the head, her hands tied behind her back, and the rope is also wrapped around her neck and tied around her ankles with black tape. Judy's killer hogtied her. Awful. Absolutely awful. A problem soon emerges within the investigation. GPS readings indicate that the pagoda is located so far from the main spinny house that it is actually in another town, not to mention another state, Southbridge, Massachusetts. Thus, the Connecticut State Police are obligated under the laws of jurisdiction to hand Judy Nyland's body and the crime scene over to the Massachusetts State Police. Most investigators believe, and I am with them, that Scott D.O.J. stalked Judy for a period of time and carried out a premeditated plan to rape and kill her. D.O.J. likely came racing up on her in his car, locked up his brakes, and stopped Judy on the road. It seems he jumped out of his car and punched her, based on the small amount of blood at the primary scene, Brickyard Road. He then gets her into his car. They ultimately find a small amount of blood on the rear passenger side door of his car. He drives her to the Spinney estate, where he knows no one is home because the Spinneys are traveling. He then drives through the gate to an outbuilding where they recover DNA linked to DOJ after testing. One theory is that he assaults her in this building and then brings her to the bench that is under the pagoda and beats her and then drags her up the pagoda attic-like stairs and then leaves her to die in that pagoda attic. Horrible. Just freaking horrible. Even though DOJ would ultimately never be charged with sexual assault, a source tells me, we knew that Miss Nyland was sexually assaulted. We found Mr. DOJ's DNA inside a separate location on the Spinney property. We also found his DNA on the rope he used to tie her up. Judy Nyland ultimately died from blunt force trauma to the head and neck. So this guy had a history of violence against women. You know, you think you can trust people, you think people are normal, but if you have the kind of resources that Carol Spinney had, why not just run a background check, especially when you have your family on the property and everything? I mean, that's what I'm saying, Catherine. I mean, I'm not trying to knock this guy. He's dead now, by the way, Carol Spinney. He died some years ago. But look, any of us can do a search on somebody. I mean, someone who's going to be on your property, working for you, coming into your house, making shelves, do the check. Just do it. As DNA from the pagoda scene and Judy Nyland's murder is run through the system, lab results come back 
And the DNA from the Nyland case not only matches with Scott DOJ, but hits on an unsolved rape and burglary in Plainfield from 2004. DOJ is a repeat sexual offender who has apparently graduated from rape and burglary to murder. So they arrest DOJ for the previous rape, which had gone unsolved for two years. That rape took place on the night of June 19, 2004, when a local woman was attacked in the safety of her home by an armed man who, after disabling the woman's telephone, sexually assaulted her and then went through the house and took what he wanted. The description the woman gave police at the time fit Scott DOJ to a T, and DOJ lived in the same neighborhood where the rape occurred. This arrest, of course, took place after his girlfriend talked him down from strapping himself to a rafter in her garage. Too bad. After being talked off the ledge, DOJ jumps inside his girlfriend's car. Meanwhile, the local police dispatch a few officers to the scene after receiving the 911 call from DOJ's girlfriend. His girlfriend grabs that knife he dropped on the ground, runs after him, and just before he is about to pull out of the driveway, the courageous woman slashes three of the four tires on her own vehicle so he cannot leave. The police arrive, and he is finally arrested. Good for her. Hell yes. Hell yes. There is also enough collected evidence to arrest DOJ on suspicion of murder. Because the Judy Nyland case originates in Woodstock, it falls on the Connecticut state's attorney to prosecute him. He is transported to Day Kimball Hospital in Putnam for a psych evaluation. After it is learned, he tried hanging himself. Two detectives arrive at the hospital and read him his Miranda rights, and he quickly declines speaking to a lawyer and signs a waiver, which allows the state police to photograph several injuries he has on his hands and ask him questions. He says this, while I was driving on Redhead Hill Road, I struck Judy Nyland. He implies that he didn't mean to hit her. It was an accident. I believe she died at the scene. That is absolute nonsense. Mm, Then uh, how'd she wind up in a pagoda, raped and beaten to death? I panicked, he says, trying to explain why he removed Judy's body from the scene. I tried unsuccessfully to carry her up the folding ladder staircase after carrying her from my car to the pagoda. He couldn't get her up the stairs without tying her up, he says. So I went back to my car to retrieve a rope and tied it around her. I call bullshite on that. Well, I mean, it's like, yes, that's what you did. But what you do when you hit someone is you call 911. That's what you do. Yeah, this is this is all, you know, like this next part that he pulls out. It's all bullcrap. Right. Scott DOJ is released that night from the hospital and immediately arrested on kidnapping charges, the only crime the state police could prove at the moment, and held on $1 million bond. The medical examiner, it turns out, disagrees with DOJ's account of the injuries Judy Nyland died from, saying they were, quote, inconsistent with being struck with a motor vehicle. The state's attorney's office believed DOJ stalked Judy Nyland, struck her down with his car, viciously beat her into submission, and continued to beat her until she died. By 2007, he decides to plead his case. During his sentencing on March 9, 2007, before a courtroom packed to capacity with friends and family of Judy Nyland, along with state troopers and police officers from all over Wyndham County, Scott DOJ stands before the court looking disheveled and dirty. He is wearing a state-issued 
banana yellow jumpsuit, three days worth of stubble, and a contrived look of despair. DOJ's defense attorney addresses the court, offering an excuse for the two rapes and murder. He suggests DOJ couldn't help himself. The lawyer claims it is the state of Connecticut's fault, essentially, that Scott DOJ has turned out the way he did. While on probation as a teen, DOJ claims that his probation officer sexually assaulted him repeatedly for three years. He had been hardwired when he was 16 years old to become a rapist. As his lawyer is telling this to the court, Judy Nyland's brother walks out of the room in tears. And here's the thing. That may be true. I wouldn't doubt it for a second. But guess what? There's a lot of other people who've been raped that don't go on to become rapists and murderers. You said it better than I ever could. And, you know, why hasn't the guy mentioned this up until this point? Right. That's why you go get help for it. You don't just, like, take it out on other people. In 1999, DOJ's probation officer, Richard Straub, was convicted on more than 30 charges of sexual assault, kidnapping, and unlawful restraint involving sexual abuse allegations from more than a dozen clients. Out of those victims, however, Scott DOJ had never been named and had never, ever, before this day in court, come out and claimed to be abused by Straub. Regardless of what may or may not have happened to him, the abuse excuse is no excuse to abuse others. As Catherine put it, I mean, this is this is dramatic. It's pathetic. It's humiliating to the memory of Judy Nyland. He is a gutless, spineless coward looking for a way out of what is animalistic evil behavior. Right. And, and, and it just enrages me. Superior Court Judge Antonio Rabania, clearly upset by the notion that Scott D.O.J. is using such an underhanded tactic to try to lessen the impact of such a ghastly crime, explains that sexual abuse is no excuse for these offenses. Judy Nyland was a person who personified kindness and caring for others. She was clearly not in your circle of violence. Picking up on that point, Judy's husband, John Baker, says, Judy was clearly no victim. She was a strong woman who accomplished more in her 44 years than most others do in their lifetime. John pauses a moment to collect himself before addressing Judy personally, saying, Come on, kid. Let's go and leave what we can here. We have a future elsewhere and maybe another song to sing together in the garden. I love you. Oh, chills reading that. Sometimes judges just get it right. Here, the judge piles on another 20 years for the sexual assault DOJ committed in Plainfield and sends him on his way to a lifetime behind bars. In closing, I do not want to sound as though I am in any way blaming Judy Nyland for what happened to her, but I want to say something to anyone listening. This is very important. If you are a jogger, a walker, I beg of you to take a different route each time you head out of the house, even if you change it up just a bit. No matter where you live, no matter how safe you think you are, there could be a psychopath like Scott DOJ lurking in the shadows, watching you as you run by his house or his place of employment every single day. 
And you must understand, as each day passes, he might become more and more obsessed with you to the point where he needs to act out on the twisted fantasies flowing through his mind. Don't give him that satisfaction. Take a different route. And also, please, check the sex offenders registry in your area with a quick Google search and find out where they live in your neighborhood. Because they're there. Believe me, no matter where you are, there are sex offenders around you. Again, in no way was Judy Nyland at fault for what happened to her. That's not what I'm saying. I am only looking to learn something from her murder so we can avoid these tragedies as much as possible. That's it for this week. Be back here in seven days for a big new case. Be safe. Be aware. Sources for today's episode come from State of Connecticut versus Scott DOJ, court transcripts, police reports, interviews, autopsy reports. A lot of this week's case is from the interviews and reporting Phelps did for his book, Murder New England, a historical collection of true crime tales. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.